Good morning. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over in the resource table so you can follow along with us. If you're visiting, we are going through 1 Samuel, so you caught us at chapter 25. Uh, what we're going to do as we've been doing over the last several weeks is we will read the passage as we unpack the passage. So that's 1 Samuel chapter uh, 25. I'm assuming most of you have heard by now about the smack. The smack that was heard around the world uh, this past week at the Oscars, the host of the show, uh, one of the hosts, I guess, I did not watch it uh, live, Chris Rock was doing his monologue kind of comedy bit, which if you've ever watched any show like that, they typically are making fun of and belittling people out in the audience. He made a comment about Jada Pinkett Smith, that is Will Smith's wife. Uh, she's got very short hair, and he jokingly referenced uh, G.I. Jane, which was a movie many years back with Demi Moore with really short hair. So he's like, I'm looking forward to seeing G.I. Jane too. Now, at face value, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you know a little bit of the backstory, Jada suffers from alopecia, a hair loss disorder disease, and she's got short hair not because she's going to be in some movie, it's because she's lost her hair, and you know, people awkwardly laugh during it, and then a couple seconds later, Will Smith, who's a bigger guy, he walks up from the front row, live on television, walks up to him and takes his hand back and smacks him, Chris Rock, right across the face. So everybody's shocked, and then he ends up going back down to his seat, and he ends up cursing and yelling. So I'm not condoning the cursing. I'm not condoning uh, the, the violence. But it was, it was a mess, and now this mess is going to be carried by Will Smith for the rest of his life and career. This week, he's already resigned from the Academy Award. I guess you have some membership and all of that. He's out of that. He's got a future punishment going on. Chris Rock chose to not press charges for the violence there's even an outside chance, but unlikely, that they could even take away the Oscar that he won that night for the first time ever. I think if we were able to have a conversation with him, he would have loved if someone would have stepped in and stopped him from what he did. If his wife would have grabbed his wrist as he got up, like, where are you going? If maybe a friend, a table or two over, would have stepped in front of him and said, hey, let's go take a break. Let's go outside and, you know, catch some fresh air and then we'll come back in. I think there's just so many ways, man, if just somebody would have stepped in and stopped him from doing what he did. If somebody would have protected him from himself so he wouldn't do something that could not be undone. And I think there's times in our lives where we need that kind of help, Amen. We need others to step in and prevent us from making mistakes that cannot be undone. We need an intervention. And what we're going to see in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel is God is the one who time and again saves us from ourselves. God intervenes in a countless number of ways to protect you and I from our own worst enemy. 
that man or woman looking in the mirror right back at you, namely ourselves. So that's what we're going to consider in our time today. As we do that, we're going to look at the four main characters of the chapter as we see God saving us from our own worst enemy. Uh, We're going to begin our time by seeing Nabal's ignorance. Uh, Nabal is the most unlikable character in our chapter. Like, we don't like him. We can even start to rationalize and justify David's potential uh, wrong that he's going to do to Nabal because you just don't like the guy. So we're going to see his ignorance and how it how it plays itself out in the chapter. Secondly, though, we're going to see David's inconsistencies. And this is really where it's going to be surprising because when we see David in chapter 25, he looks nothing like David from chapter 24. It's almost like it's not the same person. Chapter 24, he refuses to lay a finger on Saul, even though Saul's been trying to kill him. Chapter 25... David gets upset at Nabal, and he's ready to kill all the men. We're going to see a great great contrast in David and his character. Third thing we're going to look at is Abigail's involvement. Uh, She is the most impressive character in our chapter who's not the Lord. And we're going to see how she saves the day literally and figuratively in our chapter. And then lastly, we're going to look at Yahweh's intervention We're really, at the end of the day, the one that steps in, the one that protects David from himself is God as he intervenes on David's behalf. So let's get started. Let's pick up at verse 1 as we look at Nabal's ignorance. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calabite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with me, and we did no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day, Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. First of all, notice his goods. Now, Mayon, we've actually seen a couple times in our study of 1 Samuel 1. 1 Samuel 23, 25, it's where Saul almost got David. It's where Saul almost got David. He was just getting ready to grab him, it says, and all of a sudden the Philistines attacked. He had to go back to protect the people against the Philistines. He didn't get David, so that was there. Now, Carmel also is another place that we've seen. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 12, Saul built a monument for himself. So these are familiar places in the story of 1 Samuel. But notice how he's defined. He is defined by his possessions, not his person. Before we ever even hear what his name is, what do we hear? He's got stuff. He's got a lot of stuff. He's got 3,000 sheep. He's got 1,000 goats. 
So he's got a lot of stuff, but then at the end of verse 3, it says he's harsh and he's badly behaved. I think Paul's words to Timothy would have been very relevant to Nabal. 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Those would have been very thought-provoking words to a man who is defined by his possessions, who is defined by his riches, who found his pleasure and joy in his riches. So we see what's happening. So David, recall, he is on the run. Even though last week Saul gave him a reprieve, he said, okay, I'm not going to do anything. Well, that's over at this point. He's, he's going to, by the next chapter, he's going to try to kill him again. So uh, he's on the run. He's on the lamb. He's got 600 people, 600 men that he's commanding over. So he doesn't have tons of resources. So he sees an opportunity. He sees a rich guy who's got shepherds out in the field. And he's like, you know what? I've got a security company. I've got 600 men. We'll make sure that these shepherds, you know, you know there was a threat with shepherds, right? They had the fear of other of bandits, of robbers coming along, stealing from them, stealing their animals. But it's a lot harder for that to happen when you've got 600 soldiers protecting you. So David decides, I will protect, I will save his shepherds. And that's what they said. Even later, we're going to read, they were like a wall to us. You can't get by a wall, right? So David is protecting all these people. And what he's thinking, and it makes sense, if I scratch their back, what's going to happen? They'll scratch mine. I mean, I know Nabal didn't ask for me to protect his people, but I did. And the least he can do, he's got resources all over the place. He can throw me a bone. Now, he's got a bunch. He can, he can show some generosity, some hospitality for my, my kind act. So that's what David is thinking all of this. And Nabal clearly is in the position to help David mightily. Well, if you were in Nabal's position, would you take heed to the call of being generous? Let's look at your own position in life. Are you generous? Do you cling to your possession? Do you cling to your resources? Or do you share generously? So we not, not only notice his goods, notice his greed, though. Get to verse 9 with me. It says, When David's young men came, they all said this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who came from who I do not even know where? Do you see the greed? Do you hear it? What word does he love to say? My, my. Do you have to teach children how to say my or mine? It seems to be like one of their favorite first words. Mom, dada, mine, me. They do. I mean, like, like it, 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 and you, you see it with young kids. They can be kind of malicious, kind of vindictive. Like, are you using that toy? Nope. Can your brother play with it? Nope. It's mine. But you're not using it. Yeah, but it's mine. Me, me. I mean, that's how ridiculous 
Nabal sounds here. My, it's, it's my meat. It's my water. It's my bread. It's my shears. I'm not giving to anybody. No. Not to mention, he, he, he's probably lying. David's kind of a big shot at this point. Whether you're on team David or team Saul, people knew who David was. And he, he's like, even the fact that he could say this son of Jesse, how does he know that? But he plays it off like, I don't know this David. I don't know this Jesse. Another thing we read about that he's a Calebite. Why is that important? Because he is a descendant of Caleb. And it's almost meant to draw attention to how much this is ridiculous. Because if you remember Caleb in the Old Testament, he is one of the most noble men. He's one of the ones that's like, hey, let's go into the promised land and take it for the Lord. But it's kind of fitting because you know what Nabal's name is in Hebrew? It's full. It's full. Isaiah 32, 6. It says, Nabal speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity, practicing ungodliness to utter error concerning the Lord. Throughout the chapter, and we'll see it a little bit later, he's labeled harsh. He's labeled badly behaved. He's got a term that you don't really like to be heard of. He's called worthless. Do you remember who we saw that was worthless early on in 1 Samuel? Anybody? Eli's what? Two sons. They stole from the offering and they committed uh, sexual sin at the temple. Or not the temple, but at the tabernacle. And they were called worthless. And he gets to be labeled in their family tree. He is worthless. He's a folly. Luke 12, 15 warns of this though. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You struggle with greed. Do you see the propensity of our heart to not want to share? Do you see how like Nabal, I think over time, he began to drink the Kool-Aid. He began to buy into his greatness that he failed to appreciate that it was God and God alone that had blessed him with so much in the riches department. So we see Nabal's ignorance. So once we get to David's response, on the surface, if we're being candid with one another, we kind of get it. We kind of feel like this Nabal needs to be taught a lesson. This Nabal is a no, he's worthless. The Bible said he's worthless. He is worthless. He needs to suffer the consequences. Well, let's look at David's inconsistencies. So go to verse 12 and 13 with me. He says, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. And drop down to verse 21 with me. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow as in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good? God do so to the enemies of David and more also by, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And then there's one other thing I just want to read at the very end. Because it, it starts painting a picture of David in this chapter. 
And Abigail hurried, verse 42, and mounted a donkey, and her five women, young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took a high nom of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So we start seeing some stuff about David. Like we're going to see in 1 Samuel and as we eventually go into 2 Samuel. I don't know if I mentioned, so we'll finish 1 Samuel in a few weeks. For the summer, we're going to go through the book of James. And then in the fall, we're going to pick up at 2 Samuel. And one of the things we're going to see in 1 and 2 Samuel, there are times, there are chapters where David, he is amazing, right? He is a man after God's own heart. He is impressive as, as hardly as anybody in the Bible for the most part. Some chapters. And then there are other chapters where, oh my goodness, David. He's the worst. And this is one of those chapters where like, what is going on, David? Notice that he's controlled by anger. Notice what he says. The moment he finds out that he said, no, I'm not giving you anything. Immediately he resorts what to? To violence. You can even read it. He's every man strap on his sword. I guarantee that was not said, like, hey guys, let's go take a ride. No, you could see the anger. You could see the rage in David's face. Like, how dare this guy? I cared for his people, and he's rich and he's got abundance, and he's not gonna take care of me. Are you serious? I'm gonna go teach him a lesson. Everybody get your sword. And what's the sword gonna be for? It's violence. I mean, it's, it's really, isn't it amazing to see how quick it escalated? I'm always shocked by road rage incidents. Somebody cuts you off. Somebody didn't use a turn signal. And all of a sudden, you've got somebody shooting somebody. Somebody physically assaulting somebody. You're like, wow, that escalated fast. Well, that's what's going on here. David is not in a good place in the moment. James 1.19, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, do you permit anger to go unchecked in your life? Do you go from zero to cranky in like 3.2 seconds? Do you? I'll totally stereotype. Dads, how quick are you to, to snap at your kids? Or your spouse? Where you're like, you're kind of going good, and it's all of a sudden it's just like Frankenstein, just like, and you start yelling, like, where did that come from? We see that with David. I mean, this is a man after God's own heart. And he's controlled by anger. But not only is he controlled by anger, and I think this is the key in this chapter, we're supposed to see the contrast in attitude. Was he wrong that he expected generosity in light of what he did? No. But feeling entitled, followed by rage, that's not a good thing. It's such a contrast to chapter 24. It's the same person. Saul has been trying to kill David for a long time, David finally has the chance to kill Saul. He doesn't do it. Why not? Because he was anointed, the anointed one. 
But then on a, a similar but different situation, you've got Nabal who's been horrible, but he's not the Lord's anointed. David justifies and rationalizes, I, I can kill this guy as a result. But you see, in chapter 24, what was the reason why David didn't do that? He said it multiple times. Because God will judge. God be the judge. God's will, God's way. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to force my hand. I'm not going to do anything like that. God will provide. God is faithful. God is just. Remember, he even tore his men to pieces by words. Because they were all like, let's kill Saul. And he's like, we can't do it. Then literally the next chapter, we read it. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. What does that sound a lot about, like? A particular thing a couple chapters back. What happened at Nob? What happened to all the priests? They were all murdered by Doug or Diog, the, the, the Edomite. I mean, David is going to follow their footsteps, their example. He's going to go because one guy won't give and be generous to him. He's going to kill all of them. Now, maybe he won't kill the women and children like Saul ended up having done, but he's going to kill all the men because of one guy not being generous. And I think what we're going to see in David throughout First and Second Samuel is David had blind spots. He just did. He didn't see it. We've been looking for a car for my, my daughter. Uh, so if you know of an inexpensive, reliable, used car for a first-time driver, please let me know. But as I've been looking, I've been reading stuff, reading reports, and one of the things I'm really concerned about is I want her to have a car where she doesn't have huge blind spots. I was reading through one of the cars, I guess it's notorious for having blind spots. One of the worst cars for blind spots is a Camaro. So that was never an option, Sophia. <laughs> I would be driving the Camaro with the blind spots. You'd be driving the van. But no, it's, it, I, I think David, a man after God's own heart, he's got these blind spots. He doesn't see. Matthew 7, 3, it says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Well, if David doesn't get it, folly is all around, he doesn't see it. Uh, we're we're going to see David in the biggest blind spot of all when he ends up having an affair with Bathsheba, have Bathsheba's husband murdered, and goes a whole pregnancy without confessing. So that's going to be the blind spot, a blind spot so much that Nathan's going to have to say to him, that man is you. But if that's possible with David, you and I, need to be painfully aware of our own blind spots. Where we don't see, even here, where I, I don't want to digress too much. What does David do at the end? He gets married to two women. Samuel warned that the kings you want, you know what they're going to do? They're going to take. They're going to take your women. They're going to take. They're going to take. And there's David. Just because God doesn't say, hey, multiple wives, bad thing does not mean he is supportive of it. And we're just going to see this kind of slow unfolding, even though he's a man after God's own heart. 
He's a mess. But I think even the biggest picture of all of this as we look at the, the contrast and attitude with David is that what does David need? What does he need? What does every single person in this room need? We need a savior. We need Jesus. We need the one who's going to be the son of David. And I think God, I love the fact that God does not do a PR move. God does not hide the imperfections of his people. We see it right here. David was ready to massacre people because he didn't get what he wanted. Well, how inconsistent are you? Do you see your need of Jesus today? So we see Nabal's ignorance, David's inconsistencies. Let's now look at Abby's or Abigail's involvement. Read verse 14 with me. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were so good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by both day and night, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Notice the actions, first of all, of this nameless person. One of my favorite uh, book series with the kids is Choose Your Own Adventure. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I love the Choose Your Own Adventure. You read, and it's like you get to make choices, and it actually impacts the story. So if you do this, go to page 72, and you might die the next page, but you at least got to be a part of the decision. Or you turn to 43, and it prolongs the story. Well, I mean, do you understand? God is in the details like that. If this nameless nobody doesn't go to Abigail and warn her by what Nabal did, what's going to happen? David is going to arrive on scene. He's caught up in anger and rage, and he's going to kill a whole bunch of people. But God uses people like that. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we, we see this nameless person, but then we see the one that is named. We see Abigail, and she's quite the woman. Verse 18, she made haste. She took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, of the mountain, behold, David and his men came toward her, and she met them. And then go down to verse twenty-three. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Oh, me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Do you see her actions? She, she saves her whole household. She's generous. She's humble. She's selfless. And oh, by the way, she's beautiful. 
But more importantly, I would argue, she is very much in this chapter, she is the Christ-like figure. Did she do anything wrong in this chapter? And yet, who does she plead to David for? She says, forgive me. It's my fault. All the guilt is on me. If you're going to punish anybody, don't punish the people. You know, punish me. It, it, it's on me. And is that not what Christ has done for you and I? He who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him might become the righteousness of God. That she very much in this moment is acting like a mediator for her people. Well, do you see how God uses people? Do you see how God has used his son to redeem and save you? But not only do we see the actions, look at the affirmation. So she goes on, verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live. If you rise up to pursue and to seek life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord had done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, he has appointed prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or my, for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Notice what she does. In the midst of David being controlled by sin, God steps in and reaffirms his promise again. Is that the first time that God has reaffirmed his promises to David? It seems to be a reoccurring theme. For us older people, it sounds like a broken what? So records are a whole nother thing. I don't even want to digress. They would skip sometimes, and you'd start listening, and all of a sudden it would just again and again and again. And it sounds like a broken record. God keeps reaffirming his promises to David. Is it a mistake? Is it an accident? No, you know what it is? It's God knowing that we need to be reminded. It's God knowing that you and I don't hear very well, that you and I have to have constant encouragement before our eyes living in this fallen and broken world. And what we see here is God's going to do this. God is going to, 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 to provide. He's going to make my Lord a, a sure house. The Lord is going to, at the end of verse 31, he's going to deal well with my Lord. And that's going to happen. David will one day sit on a throne David will one day be a king. David will no longer be being pursued by Saul. God is going to do this, that he can rest in his justice and his faithfulness. Well, do you need to be reminded today of the promises of God? Are you not resting in him? Are you resting in your own strength? And you need to be encouraged because that's what God does through his word. He encourages you and I. All right, so we see Nabal's ignorance, David's inconsistencies, Abigail's involvement. Lastly, let's look at Yahweh's intervention. Read verse 32 with me. 
And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition." And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to be his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handsmaid is is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Notice that God saved David. Verse 26. Now that my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. Verse 33. Blessed be he who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working. Verse 34. Surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, he has restrained me. Verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who has avenged me, has avenged the insult I received. Who's in the midst of all this? Who's doing the saving? It's God. I saw these videos this past week. It was epic uh, dad f- saves. Have you ever seen them? One particular one, one of those yellow uh, roof red cars, they're pushing it down a hill. Bad idea in the first place. It's a pretty steep hill, and as it's going down and the video starts following, you see that this car is going to take out a little kid walking at the bottom of the hill. And then out of nowhere comes the flash. The dad just flies and right before picks up the child, saves the day. Those epic dad reflexes saving the day. If David isn't saved by himself, he's going to have blood on his hands. But God saves, right? He's mighty to save. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And see, sometimes what what God does in saving us is saving us from our own stupidity. How many times has he intercepted you and I on the road to folly and destruction? He restrained us from our own sinfulness. He convicted us in our sin. He removed temptations He's put obstacles. We don't know the half of it. I think the only real response that you and I can have in that moment is what? What does David do in response to this? 
What's he do? He worships. Blessed be the Lord. Like right here in the moment, I want to ask you, are you thanking God for saving you from you? You praise him for all the ongoing saving. As I look at my life and I see the number of times that God has intervened, I didn't say the thing I could have said that I wanted to say that I was going to say. I didn't do the thing I wanted to do that I could have done and that would have been such a catastrophic mistake on my part. He steps in. Not only does he save his people, he shows his power. You see, David thought he would take matters into his own hands, right? David thought that he would save his name. He would be the one that would step in. And who ended up needing David? Nobody. God did it. Psalm 96, 13. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. God in real time judges Nabal. Uh, It says like, he, he basically wakes up from being drunk and his heart dies. Now, does he, does he, is he kind of brain dead? Like, we don't know. End of the day, <clears throat> 10 days, what happens? He's dead. God judged him. Vengeance is the Lord. Well, how inconsistent are you? Do you trust in God and his judgment and his justice? Do you see your need of Jesus? When someone is their own worst enemy, have you ever been your own worst enemy? Or people in your life, maybe they're, they're self, self-destructive? I mean, I've known people. Have you ever known somebody that just did not know when to stop talking? Like even when they're out of getting out of trouble? But, and you're like, oh my goodness. Like if I can mute button you, just stop, just, just stop talking. I'm, I'm starting to develop that with a couple of my children. They just don't know when to say no, just stop, just stop talking. Like they're, they're on the cusp of getting out of trouble and then it's just like, I want to revisit that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, just stop, just stop, just like, just zip it, muzzle. There are times that individuals need loved ones to step in and intervene and help protect us from ourselves. And the reality is, that is true of all of us here. Do you know that? We are our own worst enemies. Time and again, our God saves us from ourselves. He intervenes in a a countless number of ways to protect us from ourselves and the damage that we could cause outside of living in the Lordship of Christ. In his grace and his mercy and his love, he refuses to sit by idly and watch us make a mess. He steps in Praise the Lord. I want to close with a poem by Christina Rossetti. Uh, Amy Carmichael, you might have heard her quote some of it before, but I want us to close with this. God, strengthen me to bear myself, that heaviest weight of all to bear, inalienable weight of care. All others are outside of myself. I lock my door and bar them out, the turmoil, tedium, gad about. <clears throat> I lock my door upon myself and bar them out, but who shall wall self from myself, most loathed of all? God, harden me against myself, this coward with pathetic voice, who craves for ease and rest and joys. Myself, arch traitor to myself, 
my hollowest friend, my deadliest foe, my clog, whatever road I go. Yet one there is who can curb myself, who can roll the strangling load from me, break off the yoke and set me free. Who is that one that can save us from ourselves? His name is the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge how often we are our own worst enemy. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love and forgiveness. We thank you that we can have those moments like David where we almost make catastrophic, lifelong mistakes and yet you've stepped in and you continue to step in. But we also acknowledge there's times where you don't protect us from ourselves. You let us reap the consequences of our folly and sin. So God, we pray for in those moments that we would learn from our mistakes, but we also pray and plead that you would continue to protect us from ourselves. And we thank you, Lord, that most importantly, you have protected us from our sin in Jesus, and he alone is the one in whom we have our hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand?